Is this correct? You can hear me? Okay. All right. Here we go. Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast. Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. And let's pray. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. Amen. Amen. How you doing, John? Doing good. How about you, Coach? <laughs> I'm doing just fine. Got a week this is left becoming term. Which yeah, is this, nice. <laughs> this is becoming fun. We've been doing this, I think, almost every week for the last two months. Mm-hmm. So it's been yeah. good to get back into a rhythm of things. We're on a roll. Um, I was just talking to a student today who I think should be on our podcast because um, she's in a graduate program studying counseling. She came out of my communication course and ended up taking that path. Um, she could talk about that. She could also talk about being millennial and Gen Z and stuff like that, which we've never gotten into. She, she offered an opinion and I thought, Ooh, that's an episode right there. (laughs) Let's, let's do it. We're we're on a roll of, of guest episodes, uh, including this one, actually another, another, another guest episode, uh, the third in a row we've got guest Jacob Benkin. Um, yeah. How about just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're doing. You're at MLC, correct? Yeah, thank you for having me. So my name is Jacob Benkin, and I have the privilege of serving at MLC uh, now for about the last year as the Dean of Chapel. And so my responsibilities in that role include planning the corporate worship on campus and overseeing that, as well as teaching worship uh, to undergraduates So I teach a Lutheran worship class that all of our uh, education students take. And uh, before that, I was a parish pastor. I served for 10 years in Midland, Michigan at Good Shepherd there. And um, originally, I grew up not far really from here in Brookings, South Dakota. And so, yeah, it's a privilege to, to be here at the college and a privilege to be with you today. Yeah, it's great to have you, Jacob. <clears throat> John, did I ever tell my my chapel story? I, I'm going to repeat myself otherwise. Where which, I told Jacob, which one? Okay, I told Jacob that my last two texts were, or two of my last three texts were morning chapel, were really hard Old Testament um, texts on being complacent. And then I had Romans 13, and I told Jacob mm-hmm. I would sure love to have a gospel text. Did I tell you this story? I have not heard this. <laughs> okay. Well, what is what text did you give me, Jacob, for my spring chapel? Well, John three, John three sixteen. Bit <laughs> so of a leading question. It was <laughs> a little a literal interpretation that. of a gospel text. <laughs> well, I'm loving it. I mean, what better thing to have on my mind? And you know, I've done the text study, and I'm just reflecting: what in the world are you going to do with this thing? But uh, I relish the challenge. So. Um, also, Jacob, in your life is you are you are, what should I say, working into the role of psychology instructor for our future pastors. Yeah, yeah, that's enough. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's another that's another exciting aspect of what I get to do. So, in addition to teaching worship 
I teach an introductory to psychology class for our pre-seminary students. And as part of that, I'm, I'm about halfway through a graduate program in psychology right now. And, and that's just been a fascinating additional area of study. It is also interesting to see where there are some intersections between those two topics of psychology and worship. Um, I think there's some. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think there's some valuable, valuable connections, and and maybe some, maybe some warnings too, sometimes as well. Mm, I'm making a note of that because that, yeah, that, uh, sur- surprised me in a good way. Likewise, I think we'll be looping back to that for sure. The uh, mm. where where are you doing your your graduate study? So I I am doing it through Liberty University. Um, which okay. which makes it interesting because because of course that is a it's a Christian a Christian university so um, it's interesting to get their perspective on on the issue of psychology and and how they connect it to Christianity um, some ways that I think are really valuable um, maybe maybe some other ways that that maybe in my own mind I would think about differently mm, wow that would be fascinating. Truly. So I don't know if this has come up on our podcast. This is familiar to you, John, that communication, back to that, has seven or eight traditions in it. One of them is psychological. So we should have a, maybe a whole episode on that or, or more of just how these two um, disciplines play together. You know? Yeah, maybe that could be a, a future one. Was it? Is it Craig's Matrix? Yeah, of, Brian Craig, of, Craig. Of, uh, the different traditions and then the different contexts. I can't remember what the two axes of that matrix are, but um, I remember your thesis was advocating in our podcast as well, kind of advocates for a, an eighth tradition or is it ninth? I, f- I forget how many. No, I think are. you're right. And so there are so seven. For, so for an eighth, an eighth tradition of uh, Christian communication as a, mm-hmm. a basis, especially given, you know, the deep richness that comes through scripture and being able to like, use that as a tool, not only to analyze theology and, and all of that, but then how do you take that communication out into your daily life? Right. Uh, I, I think I felt that one of the traditions is critical theory, which is Marxist feminist. And if that's the case, why, you know, Christians, as our podcast is all about, have been thinking about this stuff for millennia. And so it'll never happen, but it's still, so, so yeah, traditions um, in the context are like interpersonal and group and culture. And there's, seven or eight of those too and he's just trying to bring some kind of order in the total hot mess of a field that communication is so <clears throat> but but there is a tradition that that is psychological so i'm sure we'd find some good stuff to talk about jacob studying some of the same things and maybe to segue into the the topic that we have today Please one do. of the contexts maybe you could advocate would be uh, an eighth context of worship, especially because it seems to be a, I mean, I know that it's true for, for myself, for sure, for, for my faith, but even universally, it's hard to deny that human beings tend to worship things. It's like a core part of how we're wired. And so maybe this uh, worship being the, 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 topic of our, our discussion today. So that I'm curious how this these will all tie together. We've queued up a lot of different topics, a lot of different uh, areas of study, and it'll be really interesting to see how they all come together. Yeah, very, very interesting premise. I got to think more about that. 
that tradition yeah. or that context. Remember our <clears throat> disclaimer at the beginning. So that's my only, right. that's my, that's my warning there. I'm just kind of, <laughs> I saw a segue opportunity and I went for it. So now we'll, we'll see if we can land the plane. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> let me introduce, introduce our idea for a short series. And that is simply that we might, this is the reason Jacob is here. We might, might look at worship, corporate worship as a communication event. And we feel like there'd be a lot to say there that could be the vertical, God talking to us and us responding in worship. Um, the communication between each other, the horizontal, let's say, of worship. Um, worship beyond the sanctuary or worship um, landing in the heart of visitors who don't know everything that we know, maybe don't know Christ. So we think there'd be some some fun things to explore here, and that is our big idea for who knows how many episodes. Corporate worship as viewed as a communication and looking especially through that lens. So any reaction to that? I've got a devotion to kind of set this up, but <clears throat> jump in, anybody. <laughs> I, I'm ready to hear the devotion. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I don't have anything immediately to um, <laughs> to add to that, so I'm, I think we'll totally fine. Start there. <clears throat> okay. So I'm going to read to you from Hebrews chapter one, um, a favorite set of verses. The book of Hebrews op- opens this way: In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so, yeah, this is God's word. I thought a place to start would be something that, for us, is just probably so obvious and so taken for granted, but it actually is really, really crucial. If you study theology out there, in the world, let's say, um, at some point it will dawn on you that what you're studying is really not God. What you're studying is what people have thought about God across, you know, across the ages and various times and places. But a real study of God depends on this completely elemental thing, and that is the fact that God is communicative. So I, God, God desires to be known, and he makes himself known, and he condescends to reveal things about himself. Uh, preeminently does this in Jesus. You know, we had a, a series on apologetics, John, and we got into, it's, it's valid to study nature and the design of the universe and the complexity and to think of it empirically. But you're not going to find God that way. Uh, one of our fathers says, who wants to know God must listen to Mary's son. And so preeminently it's Christ who reveals God to us. But the big picture thing is real theology, the real study of God and the knowing of God is possible because he communicates. He condescends. He bends down to speak in our medium of human language. And so it's just kind of, again, a really essential thing to say, but it felt relevant to me to, to say all that in view of our topic. We're going to look at communication as a premier act of God communicating with us through the means of grace, showing us his true heart in Jesus, his son. And so, um, yeah, anything more to say or any reaction to that premise? Otherwise, we can get right into our topic. Is that okay? 
<laughs> we're we're all trying to talk at once. I think. <laughs> yes, we are. Uh, no, I'm 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 curious when, what the first the first um, the premise will be, and then I'll try to be relating it back to that. But I I do think recognizing that worship it, it's possible in this way because God is communicating to us, and then to to recognize that that is. Um, that's what's going on gives us a different way to to view all of the things that are happening when we take it to you know any of these contexts that we're talking about or worship as we're talking about today. And you're right. And so to realize that not everybody has this as a starting point, and I, and I suppose the whole notion of God communicating Christ to us in the ways that He does by the means of grace, baptism, and the Lord's Supper is by itself kind of scandalous because those are such humble means. But yeah, it's a it's a starting point. So I thought maybe an important place to sort of really get the conversation rolling would be in rolling would be in defining worship. What are we actually talking about? Um, I know as a young pastor, I would lean on the etymology of worship and say, "Well, this is how we show God what He's worth to us," and so we're going to sing hymns and bring offerings and offer our prayers and so on. And I've come to think that's maybe. Not the best <laughs> way to approach this. I'm going to toss that softball to, to you, Jacob. Um, defining worship or, and or responding to what I've just said. Yeah, I mean, I I do think it is interesting in, in starting to think about worship to examine how Scripture uses that term and and to recognize that that the way scripture talks about worship really probably the the aha moment is to recognize that worship in scripture is really something that encompasses our entire lives it's 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 our vocation as christians that that everything that we do through faith um, can be worship but when we're thinking about what what we typically call worship, you know, gathering together, corporate worship, um, probably in my mind, the word worship isn't the best term. That that in a perfect world, if we could if we could pick a different word, maybe we would want to do that because because on some level, using the word worship. Um, puts the focus on on us as the worshipers that we're gathering to praise God or something like that. I think that's probably the the thing I hear so often that what are we doing in worship? Well, we're praising God, and it becomes very focused on us, as opposed to what what is very what is very distinctively Lutheran is to understand that worship isn't primarily about what we are doing for God, but but rather how he is serving us. And, and like you said at the beginning, in terms of communication, how God is communicating his love to us through his chosen means, through word and sacrament. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I feel like a lot goes wrong when the spotlight comes back to ourselves. We get we get too <clears throat> introspective, and am I doing it right now? Am I doing it right now? And and I guess I would judge that by am I feeling it in this moment? And and it just becomes an entirely 
probably, as you're saying, the wrong and, and I think, emphasis. Not I, I think too. Again, for for Lutherans specifically to recognize that that this is a very Lutheran way of of thinking. I was reading a book by by a Quaker recently about worship, and and in the Quaker faith, um, prayer really becomes the primary part of worship. Um, because because this is how this is how they envision um, communication with God happening is through their prayers. Well, um, again, Lutheranism really sees it differently. That we understand that it's it's God's word, the gospel, um, whereby God is communicating with us, not not initiating through us in our prayers. So again, and, and you know maybe maybe. Evangelicals again, maybe are more focused on feelings that it's 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 how we feel or the the mood that's evoked or something like this. So very Lutheran to think of again, very focused on the means of grace. Mm-hmm. And if you're just thinking in terms of something we're doing, communicating what God is worth to us, and not that that isn't important, it's just as we say, it's kind of secondary. Um, but not only does it put a law cast on this whole thing, we're there for law reasons, we're there for First Commandment reasons, but then it's kind of more difficult to argue, why don't I just take a walk in the woods? Because I can, on my walk in the woods, be telling God what he's worth to me. But the thing that doesn't happen in the woods, I mean, it could if you <laughs> brought your communion set with you and so on, but what doesn't happen in the woods is this primary thing where God is saying, here's what you're worth to me. And he mediates his son to us in word and sacrament. And this was not too much for me to give for you and, 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 and do for you the giving of his son. It just really turns everything upside down. That's like one of our, one of our fathers said, God is in the woods, but he's not in the woods for you. <laughs> um, he's, he's in the means of grace for you. Um, so, again, can God be worshipped in a certain sense when we're fishing? Um, in in the woods, yeah, but but it's through the means of grace that God is communicating to us. Hmm. I think C.S. Lewis has a quote about that in the woods thing. I'm not going to get it right, but something about to find God, we have to turn away from the beautiful pasture and the moonlit field, whatever, and back to the church, back to our Bibles, back to our knees, where we can uh, actually receive grace and that the thought I have is that the highest worship you offer God is to let him do these things. Let God be God. Let God be be, the, be who he is, serving you um, with his grace. And just to keep it as a grace thing, um, not a law thing, is part of what we're after here. So think, so we, we mentioned mm-hmm. it, I think, a couple episodes ago. There's the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's kind of what all of this reminds me of, mm-hmm. I think. Especially if you're focused on yourself, that worship isn't really, that doesn't capture the whole thing. It's, it's kind of the opposite almost of what, of what, uh, what God expects and what he deserves from us in that, in that moment. So it would be wrong to turn that back on ourselves. Um, I want to double click on the, the etymology of the word worship. It means worthship, correct? Is that what the where, where does that yeah, trace back? I, I think I think that's really what it's saying. Um, now we can sort of just flip it upside down and say who is saying this to whom? 
and and again, God is telling us what, what we're worth to Him. But I think the real answer is that we would not really lean on etymology, because as we use words, we use words how they're used. We don't really, in our minds, mentally go through etymologies as we select our words. And I think what I heard Jacob saying is it just maybe isn't the ideal word for what happens when we're together corporately and isn't the ideal word for why we come. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, Jacob, I, don't maybe, mean to, I don't mean to get stuck up on the the semantics of it. It's more just a, no, a curiosity. I like <clears throat> but I think that if there was a better word, do you think it would just reflect more about the the other side of that equation where what God has done for us is why we are here? Something that can well, capture that? A, a similar thing, and Jacob, maybe you have more context on this. I just haven't thought about it um, recently enough, but we have called traditionally Lutheran corporate worship the divine service. And then the question becomes, well, a similar question, well, who's serving who, though, in the divine service? Well, it's the divine service. And if you're listening carefully to the words, that does put a better accent on it, that it is God who serves us. And then, of course, we respond. I mean, if you're getting a fine meal at a fine restaurant, it would be just weird not to respond and say, this is beautiful. So, of course, we respond, but it's kind of big picture end of the day, who is serving whom in the divine service. And so thoughts, Jacob, on, I, I don't think we can say too much about definitions. I think this is really very important. So, yeah, I mean, again, I, I mean, I think properly understood that there isn't necessarily a problem with using the word worship. I, I mean, I think again, we, we intuitively, we intuitively uh, just have this notion of again if if i am worshiping something then the active the active agent is me it's it's what i'm doing so i i do agree you know again if if the term is divine service i th- i think that puts that puts it in the a slightly better light just in that it's emphasizing that it is what God is doing to serve us. But, you know, I, I wonder, again, it's etymology, but but I wonder if 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 it isn't human nature a little bit too. And and that goes back to the the point about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, there's this opinio legis part of us that just always wants to be convinced. I, I mean, you know, Luther said that the sinful nature curves inward on itself, that it's always self-absorbed. And, and I think we can bring that, that part of our sinful nature into the equation when we're talking about worship, that we just are so obsessed with what we are doing, and, and, and that, that causes us to lose the proper focus on, on what God is doing for us. And I feel like it puts other strange thoughts in our heads, too, like, why does God need this? <laughs> what does he need me to do this for him? I mean, it just... You know what I mean? It's like someone needs like adulation, someone needs flattery. What? No, 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 no. That's the big picture is him doing something for us out of just pure bounding love that, that really is at his essence. And and to to worship him in that secondary sense of offering to God our adulation, I mean, that really, to me, is mostly still a gift because that's the enjoyment of him. To, to worship him means that we're just flat out enjoying the beauty of who God is. And so we don't mean to marginalize that response on our part. Again, I'm saying that over and over, 
But, but uh, it, it, God does not need, need us. us. That's, That's not what this is. is. And, and isn't isn't that true? I mean. I think that's just universally true when it comes to our faith, that even when we are serving God in some way, ultimately God is still the one blessing us even more. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think about God testing Abraham. Who, whose benefit was was that testing for it? It, it wasn't for God's as though he needed to figure out what Abraham was going to do. It was for for Abraham's benefit. And and, and again, so this is just true of um, this is just true of of every opportunity we have to serve the Lord. The Lord doesn't need our service. Um, you could certainly recognize that God would in in a certain sense be better off without our service. He could he could do it much better <laughs> than we could do. But when he gives us the privilege of serving him or the privilege of worshiping him, he's He's ultimately blessing us. So when I praise God, God is still the one blessing me. So true. We we did two episodes on vocation. And so my neighbor does need me. And that goes to your point about all of life is really the the focus of worshiping. Um, John, I got a question for you, but you got a thought first, it seems like. I mean, my main thought would be that the fact that worship is what God is doing for us primarily might just be the defining characteristic that separates Christianity Mm -hmm. from virtually every other religion and maybe even Lutheranism from all of the different branches of Christianity, just that that is where the focus is and that's where the focus remains. Yeah. And I, and again, I, I, I mean, I always am hesitant to pick on other denominations or, but, but I do think that that's true is when you, when you look at, when you look at other Christian church bodies, invariably they are viewing worship from a law perspective in one way or another. Whether mm-hmm. whether it's the the sacrifice of the mass on one one side, or or whether it's again worshiping the sovereign Lord as it is on the other side of the spectrum, it becomes about us instead of God serving us. Mm. It's this fundamental thing that you see, in, especially in Western Christendom, that, and I've said this before, and I'm probably quoting somebody, um, but it is that the grace mass of Christendom believes that at the end of the day, this whole thing is about us living for God. And it just misses the accent, honey. But this is about at its heart and, and core is God living for us in Christ. So there is something there that goes beyond just an accent or an emphasis that it's your, it's your whole, yeah, your whole way of viewing this. I was going to ask you, John, um, do you remember what you wrote on my basement wall? So, uh, was it Send It Skyward? Was yeah. That, is so, that what it was? Yeah. yeah I was, that, on a, I was somehow on a kick, came up. I was on a kick of that <laughs> phrase back at that time, I think. <laughs> so as a runner on my cross-country team, we have a senior banquet at the house, and we'd everybody sign my basement wall. My crummy basement wall, but it's still there. And so, to Jacob's point, and I think I, I've heard the guys at WLC talk this way that whatever we are throwing up toward heaven, whatever we're sending skyward um, in the form of prayers and songs and so on, it all falls back to us. It all falls back to us. And it is, it is more grace upon grace. And if we get into a distinction of, okay, let's 
Having talked about the vertical, let's talk about the horizontal, that sort of mutual thing happening among worshipers. Um, that'll be a big idea there that, okay, we're, we're offering adulation, but we're the ones being blessed by it in, in a really fundamental way. So now this is kind of thing. Def definitions matter. We'll get into issues of communication and where those, uh, I guess, overlaps are. Uh, for example, a friend of mine was taking his qualifying exams at Regent University for his PhD. And one of his questions you had to write about for two hours was write about the NFL in terms of narrative. So we got two hours to write about a typical, you know, any given Sunday broadcast of NFL. It's just going to be stories within stories within stories of players and teams and histories. And it's just a full-on saturation of stories. And um, in my book about worship, I got into that in one devotion was just how much more worship isn't this saturation of stories, God's story and our stories. And, and every divine service tells the story in its own way of Jesus and so on. There's lots we can get can kind of get into when it comes to looking at this through the communication lens. That's just maybe an appetizer. Um, I, I, anything more on your minds right now before I move this to a, kind of the second part of all this I would introductory episode? Go ahead. All I would say in addition to that would be I remember I think I took the class that you're teaching now, Jacob. Uh, maybe Moldenhauer was teaching it back at the time. Um, but it was on on worship for the for the teacher track, and that was one of the things that kind of reinvigorated my understand or like my worship experience. Being able to to go and worship, I, I think more effectively or with more context or be able to appreciate it more was just to see why the way that our liturgy is constructed or the way that you know the order of worship and the the songs that we sing to, to know where those come from, how they've developed. I mean, tracing back to synagogues before the time of Christ, the, the order that some of these things are done. And so being able to, to understand a few of those things and where they come from gave me a new, a newfound appreciation for how all of that came together. And that's kind of, you know, the story of the church as it is today. Yeah. I, I absolutely love teaching the course and, and it does strike me that typically Typically, this is a junior or senior level course at MLC, and it really is for almost everybody the first opportunity to spend some quality time thinking about an activity that, that many, if not most of them, have been doing their entire lives to really give some thought <laughs> to worship. And it it always strikes me that it would be it would be nice if in some format that that content could be could be taught at an earlier stage of life i mean maybe some you pastors you could almost teach yeah you could teach some of that in high school or yeah. even grade school i would think mhm mm yeah i i mean maybe some pastors deal with it a bit in catechism um, but but beyond that i mean again i think what what a cool thing that would be if more of our people just we're able to have some time to think about more deliberately what it is we do when we gather together and why we do it that way. Um, Jacob, did your voice just cut out? Oh, I'm hearing you now. I think it was just a moment I didn't hear you. 
Sorry about that, John. Yeah, sorry. <clears throat> I'll be able to cut this out. You can continue. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, to be Captain Obvious here, worship is a point of some controversy. Um, I, I, I'm glad to think of a theology of worship as the starting point. The necessary starting point is what is this thing, the why, the why and the what of worship. What I want to get into here um, would be four principles of worship that I have said, I'd like to think we could all agree on these four. And, well, I'll talk more there in a moment. But first, I'm just really, really curious, Jacob, how much controversy is there in that class? How much pushback do you feel you get as students are, in a good way, wrestling for the first time with what what actually am I doing here in church, right? So thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, so I I found I found the discussion is is excellent. I mean i I love the I love the discussions we can have in class about worship. I I have to be honest. I was I was almost expecting, and maybe I was almost prepared for a little more pushback than than I get, and. That that has mm. that surprised me. That I just I sometimes I feel like I'm even baiting the students. Like I'm trying to get them to to disagree with me. I'm trying to get them to to uh, come at it from a different perspective. But but I, I haven't really do, experienced do, that. I and and maybe do you feel like I think I know the answer to this. But you'd have to be a pretty safe room for people to buck the trend of the class. You know what I mean? Or do you think most of our students are really prepared to be on board with everything that we've said so far? I just kind of think there are other voices out there. I just wonder if we're hearing them. You know, something at our campus. Something I wish I could do is, and I need to explore this some more, is because it's a required class, it ends up being a fairly large group. I mean, I have between mm-hmm. twenty-five and thirty in each section, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, I'd love to see if I could get a few more sections so that we end up having smaller groups. And I wonder if that would, that would engender a little more sense of community within that class and, and maybe, maybe make it a, a safer place to have conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Interesting. It just feels, it's a big, especially once you hit 30, it's just, it's just too big. What, what right. room are you teaching it in? We, we always had it in the, there was an organ room. Yeah, that's where we're in, at. In the music hall. Okay, so they still teach it there. Yeah, it's almost like a lecture hall at yeah. some point. You've got the little, the little terraced, uh, yeah. little slight little rise up. <laughs> so yeah, smaller, smaller groups, I would, I would be very much in favor of smaller groups for that class. Yeah, you know, it would be good to have that controversy be in the open because, um, you know, my impulse would be to honor the questions that students might have about things we've said so far. You know, the confession, the Lutheran confessions are explicit. You don't judge people by their worship forms. You just don't do that. That's We're not going to lay this on your conscience, exactly what it looks like in terms of forms, like what kind of music, that kind of thing. And that's something, I, I um, mean, I... I I try to emphasize throughout the class that that we're certainly not here to judge um, choices that other Christians may make about worship, mm-hmm. and um, and and to recognize that there there are brothers and sisters within our own fellowship who who do things 
differently. And um, again, Christian freedom would remind us that that that's okay, that God doesn't demand specific forms. Mm -hmm. And if someone comes in with a concern for people who did not grow up in our tradition, that we would worship in a way that still has points of contact and still has an accessibility, it isn't got to be a Wells Lutheran for 20 years before this starts to impact you and speak to your heart. I mean, I think that's completely valid. And there's freedom to ask good questions about this. On the other side, I think there's freedom to say, you know, our at least one historian among us has said that if you were to ditch the liturgy, just get rid of it, there's no reason that inevitably leads to a loss of Lutheranism, but that it has invariably done so across history. So there's good things to say on both sides, but I think that the 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 conversation is a truly important one. This is, someone said it this way, these three remain faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Well, you think of education, evangelism, worship as the church's task. Worship is one that's forever. You know, worship is one that just has that largeness to it. So close to defining what life is that <clears throat> we, can't too, we can't spend too much time or, or, or spend our best people even, such as yourself, Jacob, on on a topic like this. It's just that essential. What uh, is the main controversy you would be anticipating in a class like that? Would it be something along the lines of contemporary worship versus uh, more traditional? What what topics do you think would ruffle the most feathers? Well, I, I mean, probably probably the biggest the biggest question would be um, maybe defining what what is Lutheran worship, and is Lutheran worship by definition liturgical, and and how should we react to alternative forms that that are non liturgical? Um, sometimes I think that can be that can be described as contemporary versus traditional, but I'm not convinced that those are the best terms to use for for, for sure. the debate. Right. Contemporary is especially a slippery of a term. So, well, that's maybe a nice segue. What I said before, if there are four points that we might be able to have as common ground or agreement, whatever controversy there might be, four things we'd like to think people might be on board with. Here are the four. I'll just kind of sketch them out a little bit, and we'll see which one of us creates... How much conversation? These are not mine. I think I got these from the old hymnal, now the green hymnal, now not the new hymnal anymore, from Jim Tiefel's Worship Manual. Um, so, <clears throat> not my ideas, but here are the four. Can we agree that worship, um, and not losing the idea of worship as communication from God to us and from us to each other. Number one, that it would be word-saturated. And I like the phrase Christ-obsessed. It would be would be in large part, the stitching together of Scripture and the Word of God in which we can immerse. Now, that already is maybe arguing for liturgical. I don't mean to overstate that part, but it is the Word of God, and it is about receiving Christ as our Savior and by, by means of the means of grace. So that would be one. Um, number two, to do the sketch, we can go back to whatever. Um, I like to think of worship as releasing the people's song. 
instead of saying to people by the forms and style, you're here to watch others perform whatever this worship is. And I'm not saying there isn't, we aren't really blessed by soloists and choirs, and so we're not saying anything contrary to that. But I was at a worship service once, it was contemporary, whatever that means, you know. And I just looked around and nobody was singing just because of the syncopation and the worship leader said something like, join in if you can, or join in when you're ready to. And so clearly the, the point wasn't that we would be singing robustly, as can happen. The next song is a, is a hymn, and you look around and everybody's completely engaged with it. And there's just something... Well, I guess I would just leave it at that, that can we agree that the participation of God's people is a value to, to not lose um, for something we might think of as entertaining or as performance. So releasing the people's songs, what I said. Number three, <clears throat> could we agree on a combining of old and new? So not jettisoning everything that's been gifted to us as a heritage. At the same time, is not stifling the artists or the, the fresh window they can open with new forms and new melodies and new tunes and even some new rituals in some ways. So blending old and new um, regaining a rootedness without stifling creation would be number three. And number four would be just a full exploiting of the arts. One of their values is just we're not, we're not among those who would be a iconoclast, you know, just smashing art of any kind, um, pushing back on guitars and pianos and organs and things. No, we'd like to fully exploit the arts, both visual and, and uh, whatever. The auditory arts, I don't know if that's the right term. So the four are word saturated, Christ obsessed. It's all about the means of grace. Two is participation of God's people. Three is blending old and new. And four is the arts. So where should we take this conversation? Anything that uh, gets triggered for either of you? Is there anything there controversial? Do you, or am I overstating that no, can't we agree on this it's, much? It's difficult because it's you're, you say these things and I'm like, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Agree. Can't disagree with that. That, that that's, that's kind of where I've, I've approached it, but the, maybe the last two getting onto the, well, at least even the, the musical sense, the arts that, that these are gifts of God that we've been given. And so part of that, you know, sending it skyward, if you will, is giving that back. Right. And so why would you not use that to the fullest extent in worship? And whether that comes as a, you know, playing the organ or singing a solo or, you know, making a stained glass window, whatever form it would take, why should not that not be included as, as part of worship or seen as an act of worship? Yeah, I remember an early draft of my book on worship, Our Worth to Him, I was gone over by some experts among us with a fine-tooth comb. And I had a chapter that got into... Oh, things like heavy, heavy metal guitars and smoke and smog machines or fog machines <laughs> and, and, you know, just given over completely to entertainment and a person being there saying, well, I finally know what worship is because of however that affected them. But I think the pushback from these experts was you, you said, Mark, you really haven't gotten at what would be wrong with fog machines and <laughs> heavy distorted metal and that, those kinds of things. So it's it's a little bit complicated. I think part of it comes down to our sensitivities. You know, I think I also mentioned the kazoo. 
Why not a kazoo to lead worship? It just, for me, the associations are just so so thick that this is not serious. If your music is kazoo, mm-hmm. it's just not a serious thing. But I, I hold myself back saying, well, these are my sensibilities. Yeah, we've, um, go ahead. we've talked, we've already mentioned the idea of Christian freedom. And, you know, we recognize that in worship, um, we are free, that, that we don't, live under a Levitical ceremonial code for worship. Um, but I, I think the, the next thing to recognize is, is to recognize that freedom actually is more difficult. That, mm-hmm. you know, I always, I always think of it in terms of, of the difference between childhood and adulthood. Um, to a degree, it's nice just to have somebody telling you what to do. And it becomes much more difficult when now you are responsible and you are free. Um, so now as Christians, mm-hmm. we, are, we are free in our decisions that we make about worship. But that, that doesn't mean that our decisions don't matter. Um, our decisions are very important um, as we live in this freedom. And so... Now we have to have conversations about is is a kazoo appropriate in worship? Certainly, we're free to use a kazoo in worship, but we have to be able to to use the wisdom and the discernment that God gives us to figure out. Well, is the kazoo really the way to go, or or is there something better? Um, can we worship? I, 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 I agree yeah. for sure. Yeah, I, I was go ahead, John. In a go sense, ahead. the whether you're using a kazoo or not isn't the primary question. It's, you know, how and why are you using this? And so I could imagine there are plenty of times where, you know, you could do this with a, I don't know, ill intentions maybe, or you're making a mockery. You could do it in a very poor way. And then there are other ways that could be very tasteful where it's a a unique, interesting way to bring in, you know, maybe a grade school where they can, <laughs> this is an instrument that it's harmless enough to give to little kids and they can go praise God with the mm. kazoo for a, for a stanza of something. You know, so it's more about the underlying questions rather than the actual, here's the physical thing that you're using. And so being able to identify that, I think, is where the difference would, would lie in my mind. Mm. And, and maybe I mean, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And so that's where the Christian freedom and the disc- like the choices that we make uh, that's where we have to wrestle with it, and and maybe to maybe to connect back to the topic of communication when we're thinking about the fact that worship communicates. What will our decisions communicate to ourselves as God's people, but also to those outside the church? What what will our decisions communicate um, when we're thinking about worship? Um, if I if I say that a kazoo is a fine way of of worshiping God, that, that might communicate something to, to the outsider um, as opposed to um, offering God the very finest and the best in music that I can. That's the answer I've heard to the kazoo <clears throat> analogy as well. Sure, it's fine. Is that the best you have? So, so that just gets to what I'm hearing from both of you is that calling it a matter of freedom doesn't end the conversation. That kind of starts the conversation. 
and it is a complicated conversation. When you use the word like tasteful, that well that that takes me to well how are consciences of the worshippers informed that I'm trying to serve. You can't just roll over that and treat that as unimportant because if you put on heavy metal music for me in church, I'm going to really have to fight against my old self, you know, and not be a curmudgeon about that. So, <clears throat> yeah, this is I'm willing to fight that fight, but as far as a worship planner, I don't I just don't want to be oblivious to sensitivities. Yeah, this is this is one of the things that that I'm trying to think better how to teach and and part of it part of it is just thinking it through for myself but but I think we have to acknowledge um again I'm and I'm just thinking about communication right now but that musical style does communicate I mean sometimes we might think of music simply as a vehicle for the spoken word uh, that that music is just the vehicle through which we 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 attach the the gospel and that's true of course but but sometimes do we also need to acknowledge that music itself even style of music can and does communicate something you know when i when i hear heavy metal music that has associations with it for me i think of certain things and um typically those things aren't aren't related to Christ or the gospel. Now, I mean, for other mm-hmm. people, it might be different, but, but, but music does sure. communicate. Absolutely. That was one of the things that was most enlightening to me about the, the worship class that you're teaching now was, you know, we're going over Gregorian chants and just to, when you have much faster, um, when you're speaking faster, it's more important. Or maybe it's the other way around. Uh, it's been a minute since I've taken the class, but you know when it's it's slower and it's not as intense, um, it's not the high point of the phrase that you're saying. But when you start to say things faster and maybe you're varying the pitch and intonation more, now it's something that's more important. And so maybe that's another style of music that for some people doesn't really do anything. But knowing that now, I have a little bit of context, and now it's more. Um, more open to that style of, you know, psalm or incantation uh, in a worship service. And then vice versa, as you said, you know, I'd know people who where heavy metal is their primary contact with Christianity. And that was kind of a community that brought them in and took them in and removed them from a lot of the things that we might associate with, you know, heavy metal. And so it can go both ways. And I think being, being uh, mindful, especially if you're a worship director, if you're making decisions about, you know, here's what we're going to sing this, this week, or here's how we're going to conduct our worship service. That's when it's, it's to be mindful about, okay, what's the, what is my worship? You know, who's going to be in the pews? Who's going to be, you know, experiencing this and to, to make those choices with mindfulness. That's great. What you made me think of both of you was, Communication. So when I teach nonverbal communication, for example, I've got a list of five reasons, Paustian's five reasons to care, things that make this really important. And one of them is sort of like not rocket science, but it's the what versus the how of our talk. So the the what is the content, the how is nonverbal. And the point we always make there is that if the what and the how are saying different things, you'll always believe the how. So 
say you're sorry. I'm sorry, she says. Well, I don't believe you because I know what the words were, mm-hmm. but but how you said it was just louder. It was just more persuasive. And I always challenge students, think of an example where it wouldn't be that the nonverbals were louder and were what was persuasive and credible. And they never can. And so I actually had this in the appendix of my book. I kind of cut it out just because I wasn't sure if I was ready to stand on it. But the how of worship does communicate. That's what you're saying, Jacob. The how could be communicating, we're here to be entertained. The how could be communicating, you're here to watch. It could be communicating all kinds of things. And you may get the words right, or a lot of them right, but but uh, the other message just rings um, much more loudly. And so as a way to maybe try to get at why style does matter, um, someone has famously called, it was a jibe, a not fair jibe, at uh, what he thought of as contemporary worship, but describing it as Luther, the wine of Lutheran theology in a styrofoam cup. And what he was trying to say was style and substance do have to be there in a nice fit with each other. They do have to kind of both be saying the same thing. There, there should be a compatibility. And so this is, you know, I cut it because it's maybe a little bit squishy, maybe a little bit, like, I, I don't know if I can hang my whole argument on these kinds of things, but style, I guess I'm just saying style does matter. And I think I heard that from both of you. Yeah, I mean, and there's the, I mean, there's that famous principle of lex orande, lex credendi, that the that the law of prayer is the the law of belief. In other words, that that doctrine and practice are are intimately connected to one another. And again, I, I, I am certainly don't stand up in a classroom to criticize those who, who might make other decisions about worship. But in my own mind, I, I have to confess that I, I struggle, I struggle to understand how, um, how one can hold on to Lutheran theology um, by using a worship form that really comes from a very different understanding of the means of grace, mm-hmm. and and think that think that that different worship form will will maintain that that confession of faith that is Lutheranism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I <clears throat> I tend to agree from from another standpoint. I mean what you're saying, I think we said in my way was that theology is a starting point and let everything flow from how you deal with this in a robustly scriptural way. From another standpoint I think of I heard a a musician among us, this is years ago, but he had composed a, a new tune to with broken heart and contrite sigh. And it was a snappy tune. <laughs> we had broken heart. And you could just snap your fingers, tap your tap your feet to with broken heart and contrite sigh. And I just I just can't think of a worse marriage of you know, of the words and the and the musical trappings. It just was so off putting to me and all my sensibilities. So there's that too. There's Trusting the artists among us who know how to do that stuff, because it was just something. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, 
This is one of the things that sometimes I think isn't appreciated fully about Martin Luther. You know, there's there's these these myths floating about that that Luther went into the bar and found tunes and and these I were the, never, his hymns that. and and that that of course is is historically silly that that's not true and, and really the opposite is true that Luther looked for the absolute best musicians he could as he was thinking about worship the best composers and and he specifically avoided secular music <laughs> Uh, to create something different for the church. Very interesting. <clears throat> so, again, you're going to say, I can put the wine and Lutheran theology in any kind of container? Really? <laughs> and, and again, to, to appeal to freedom does not end the conversation. So anything goes because it's freedom. No, no, no. Let's, let's talk about as people who honor and respect each other. Let's get that marriage right. <laughs> yeah. I think the maybe another vantage point to view this conversation is through the one of the other principles that you had said from before, which was a blending of old and new. You know, there are time most of history didn't have an organ as a way to express, you know, any type of song, whether it was secular or religious. And so, how as new instruments come out as new music styles come out how do you incorporate those things in a way that is tasteful so it's not a styrofoam cup anymore now it's you know i, I don't I, the comparison <laughs> runs out for me but but being able to incorporate things is possible but why you're doing it and how you're doing it is where the real wrestle is and that's that's where it becomes the the conversation and that that's where those choices need to be made so they're Again, it's that's the 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 joy and wrestle of Christian freedom is that all of these <laughs> things are allowed, and now, uh, totally. uh, now what will you do with that? Are you going it's to? It's complicated. Yeah, it's not. There's not a cut and dry answer for any one of these things. It's. I mean, maybe maybe it's just this just says something about me, but I like to think about these situations like what would be a a place where a kazoo would be a great way. To incorporate this into worship, is there is it possible? Because it's 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 permissible, and so maybe to think about you know when when would this be an appropriate way to to conduct worship, and maybe maybe you can find something with like a you know here's a an instrument you can give some to a grade schooler, or this is the first instrument they know and they're just getting used to you know pitch as it is, and that's that that's how you can facilitate worship in that way, or you know, any of these other things that we've talked about, there are probably tasteful ways to do them. And that's maybe just like a, an intellectual curiosity for me, but it doesn't take away from the fact that the, the choice is where the, the question begins and that's where the conversation begins. And so that's where, that's where it all stems from. All of the, all of the choices that we make about worship, what, uh, I remember one of the hot button topics was what translation are we going to use? And so, you know, barring any, gross inaccuracies any one of these is generally permissible right we're allowed let's you know can communicate the word in the in the worship service um but why are you why are we using this one what is the best one that we can possibly use and maybe to think about it in that way instead of like i'm doing this because i can versus i'm doing this because i think this is the you know xyz for whatever reasoning you have and not that the reasoning like you always have to justify everything to the nth degree about why you chose this certain mode of worship. Um, but yeah, 
That's <clears throat> when I say train it's ran out of steam. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I, I remember a conversation where it turns out that a person's associations with your organ. What were they? Well, they were horror movies, horror movies, and small city funeral homes music. And so, okay, we've got to think about this now. Can I construct a scenario where a kazoo is not silly? I probably could. You could. You could write that story. If I don't know, <laughs> but but it's complicated in that way. But I think if we if we can approach it in Christian love, I think in caring about people who desire to have this connection with God and to hear Him speak to them that we don't lose track of that. C.S. Lewis has a thing, I think about this in my book, where you can think of two ways a musician honors God. One is a musician, or two ways a music honors God. One is a musician puts away his show-off pieces and puts away his highbrow interest in music because he just says, this won't serve these country folk that I'm here to serve. And he just it's a humbling thing that he would not display his very best as a musician. On the other hand, it could be he does, and the parishioners say in humility, well, this is over my head, but he knows music, I don't. And, and either way, it's, it's a different set of issues. It's humility and love that we bring to it, not you know, questions of showing off or my tastes against yours. So anyway, I think there's probably more to say about the old and new thing. Um, I kind of took us back to the, yeah, <clears throat> the I, arts in a way, but I suppose the ahead. entry point there was the, the in relation to music or how we're doing that part of worship, but also now thinking about the, the part that resonates or the part that I associate this old and new blend with the most is actually in the liturgy itself and the way that it's constructed with, you know, confession and absolution at the beginning with, um, you know, why are there these readings, and maybe the, I can't remember exactly how it goes back, but I think the readings go back to ancient synagogue practice. And so to see how all of those things have come together and now which which things are, are new. And so to make a blend where, I mean, you could make an argument that Lutheran worship has always been contemporary. Yeah, there's this, there's this, this great story about, about Bach that, you know, he's serving as cantor in Leipzig and there was a, a, a merchant who, who had taken a trip to the Middle East and he, he brought back with him an instrument that would have been maybe, maybe somewhat like a bassoon, but something that, that the people in Leipzig never would have seen before. And, the very next week, Bach wrote a cantata that featured that instrument. And so that would have been heard in, at St. Thomas. And mm, so, Sounds like something that. Bach would do. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I think the point is true. I mean, the, the Lutheran church has always, has always embraced the, the new songs of God's people in every age <coughs> while recognizing that that doesn't mean that we want to deprive ourselves of the treasures of the of the heritage that we have mm-hmm. as the church and and not and this is this is something i think that that sometimes we do well to remember too that that the heritage we have as the lutheran church doesn't start with 1517 but it it go, goes back even further like you said um to 
to worship of the of the church in the Middle Ages and the ancient church, and and even to the believers of the Old Testament that there, um, again, there are wonderful wonderful ways that we we recognize again that um, we are not a we are not a sect we're not a cult, um, you know we are we express our faith in the in the one holy Christian church of all ages. Yeah, it's a chance to have ecumenical joy in the proper sense of being part of something so much larger, so much bigger, so much older than, than we are. It's what I call before the rootedness, um, the having a history. Um, someone has said the sun never sets on the divine service. Some places the divine service is being celebrated right now in other cultural trappings for sure. But yeah, I mean... So my, my book has some of the details that I researched, and it's, it's not at my fingertips now, but how long has it been happening that the, the pastor says, the Lord be with you, and the congregation responds, and also with you? I mean, this goes back almost to the very beginning, and there's something that enhances my worship when I just happen to know that, the Lord have mercy. How long, how long have we sung that as the Lord's Supper is prepared? And that's not to make those things sacrosanct. Yeah. Um, this doesn't cancel freedom, but I think that in love for people, I think people are looking for that kind of rootedness, that kind of this is bigger than me experience. You know, and I think I, I don't know, at least I, I I certainly experienced it as a as a pastor. Um and I'm sure I'm sure you did too, Mark. Um that there are certain moments in life where we where we find such comfort in those things that sometimes can just be rote memorization. Um, Clem Price talks about that in in the fire and the staff, but you know at a hospital scene, you know horrible, horrible scene, and what does this young pastor say? You know, the Lord be with you, and the people respond and also with you. And I remember I had a situation like that where uh, you know somebody, Shook his hand on Sunday after church, and um, and that afternoon he was gone. You know, had one of those widow maker heart attacks and was probably gone before he hit the floor. Um, you know, and what what do you say to his wife in that moment? And you know, we just pray the Lord's prayer, and that's. And there's again, there's just such meaning in those things. Yeah, I, I tell stories just like that in my book. <clears throat> my father being blessed by someone. Uh, with their ironic blessing the moment before he died. <laughs> and, you know, like, holy cow, that that came to the surface of this man as his wife, as his life is waning away, that little bit of liturgy. Um, so, I, you know, it is an appreciation that takes a lifetime to acquire. Um, like, become, like Tifo says, like becoming a coffee drinker. That takes a while to acquire that taste, but once you got it, <laughs> you're, you're probably not going to give it up. <laughs> but to not cancel that sensitivity for people that, you know, I want everybody in the door to to be able to respond to this worship, and I don't want to just leave out the fact that that you haven't grown up with this and so on. So it's complicated, but driven by love is what we're saying. And that's that's where I think maybe in, including that type of education, the worship education class that you're teaching now, the history of our liturgy, some of those things too earlier in. Christian education, at least, or at least having access to those materials in churches is a really, is a great benefit, I think, because it certainly enriched my worship 
I now had context for why all of these things are there. I under, I have, I would have had no idea that I was connected to a church throughout history if I didn't know those things. And so it's, uh, maybe that's not the worship itself. Um, of course it's, you know, don't want to detract away from the things that worship actually is that we've, you know, discussed at the beginning of the podcast, but being able to share and understand why these things are the way that they are and the history of them does give you some of that connectedness that, that lets you, you know, sing as one church instead of just my church here. For yeah, sure. I, I think the point again, patient love, patient instruction is, is so key because, but again, to use the analogy of, of coffee, the first time, the first time somebody tries coffee, if they've, if they try, you know, what I would call really good coffee, they're probably not going to like it. It's going to be way too strong. It's going to be overpowering. Um, and maybe the same thing is true with worship that, um, again, patient instruction and um, recognizing what, I remember one of the, the dumbest things I ever did as a pastor, and there certainly are many of them, is that the first, the first year I was a pastor, I tried to do a full Easter vigil service without really taking the time to, to educate the congregation about what this was and how this worked. And I look back and think how, how silly that was. Um, they were there and they, they were good sports and patient with, with, with me and my, my foolishness. But, you know, I didn't do a good job of, of that. That didn't really serve the people. So, you know, again, I think that's you know, so important. I, it makes me think of an, an, analogy from, an analogy from years ago is that someone goes to an NFL game again, back to the NFL, it's their first time. Do they have to know everything that's going on for them to be caught up in it and, and be affected by it? No, they don't have to. So there's an education process. But the, the analogy says we don't have to change everything either for, for the fact that there's a lot going on and we don't want to impoverish people and just, you know, dumb it all down either. So it's finding that that balance and love, love will guide the way for that. Maybe this takes it in a different turn, but uh, especially if we're, kind of pivoting to talking about how this is um, something for the people, the the common folk, right? As, you know, that's one of Luther's, or not Luther's, Luther's tenets of worship was that this is in the vernacular. This isn't something that we just go here to observe. This is something we're participating in. This is something that we can engage with. Um, but the types of people that you can serve in a worship service are people who have either been there before, people that are sharing your faith, or people who have never experienced this before, who might have no context for what that is. And so how do you construct a service and you know, make that experience something that is serving both of those people? And, mm-hmm. and in some, of, some, some of that is more difficult. Some of it's way easier. But as you said, Jacob, it's uh, you know, patient love instruction and slowly, um, you know, this coffee is for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, again, it's it's kind of like the NFL analogy, but but I have this I have this personal story that has just it it was so influential about the way that that I think about worship. So my my son is a big University of Michigan fan. So about a year ago, um, 
you know, I wanted to take him to a game, so I, I splurged. I got really good seats, and he and I went to this University of Michigan game. He's a big fan. He's never been there before. And and I'm not I'm not at all a fan. I'm taking I'm going to the game for him. But we get there, and you know what I quickly realize, and I, I mean again, I'm kind of a novice in a rube here, but um there's all sorts of tradition surrounding going to this game and all sorts of things that you you do. I mean, you stand up and you and you move in the right way and say the right things, and there's just all of this. And so this couple, this grandpa and grandma behind us, recognize that that we're new. And I think they felt bad for my son, you know, having this dad who doesn't know what he's doing. And so they they took him, they moved him up to their seats. And they like, you know, they like they told him what to do throughout the game and they explained everything that was going on. And I thought this is such a perfect analogy for worship. Um, you know, somebody new isn't going to know what's going on. But those people behind us were so excited about Michigan football and so excited that there was that new person there who was going to experience it that, you know, they took the, they wanted to share that with, with my son. And, you know, I think how uh, that's, that's what we should be doing in worship, that we're so excited about what's going on there. We're so thrilled when somebody new comes to experience it. That, you know, we're doing everything to show them how much this means to us. That's beautiful. <clears throat> and I think it also speaks to the notion of why we don't just dismantle everything and start from scratch just in our time. Um, so to throw up a different analogy, C.S. Lewis analogy is you're, you're remodeling a house. Well, okay, before you take a wall down, maybe you want to know what it's doing there. Like who put it there and why <laughs> before you just tear it down. <laughs> And there's something to that too. Why start within the in the invocation? Why start with God's Trinitarian name? Why do that? There's a really good reason to do that, right? Kind of prepares you for the hard part coming, which is a confession of sins. Um, so my book is framed, or the preface talks about an ethnography. So this is a communication element again, I suppose, to keep that in front of us. But ethnography is you go to some cultural space that's strange to you. And then you try to capture everything that you see there, what everything means, and capture it in writing. That's an ethnography. And so I was trying to do that for worship, is to enter Lutheran worship as a cultural space and try to understand everything that's going on there the best I could, and then capture it in words, because it goes to that point of, there's freedom here, but let's not tear the thing down before we know what it is. And what a better analogy you offer. Let's... Let's take the kid in our arms and talk him through. <laughs> that's just, you know, that's just beautiful. And coming and off of It's a, like, let's enculturate him into this experience and not just, yeah, I've already made my point. Yeah. Go ahead, John. And coming off of a, you know, a lengthy series that we just did on apologetics and, you know, how are we wanting to share our faith? I think in worship, you know, if we're taking that analogy of the football game, like how, how excited should we be when someone new walks in and sits down in the pew on the other end of us and how... You know, we can get to share what worship is like with them instead of, oh, look, there's new people here and maybe not think anything of it. That I think I'm not sure what it, what it's like in other churches, but, you know, sometimes I get the impression that we're not the best at, you know, being able to share it the way that we would share something else that we're joyful of, like being at a football game or, you know, seeing 
an athlete or, you know, any of these other things that we're going to a concert, you know, how, how much more so should we be willing to and eager to, to share this with the other people that, that don't quite have that with us yet. And then, yeah, that. That's really good. You know, just to stay balanced on this question, because what someone listening might want to say to us (laughs) is, you know, it can become just going through motions. It can become that. We stand up for the gospel reading. Why? Well, it's what we do. And, and it doesn't, without teaching and modeling and, you know, putting the spotlight there, it doesn't automatically mean this is respect for the words of Jesus, right? So it can become thoughtless, ritualistic things that, that uh, have drifted away from their, their meanings. But so you got these two choices. Do you abandon it, ditch it all, or do you make it meaningful? And um, I think we've all kind of tipped our hands where we might be in that question. But Yeah, and again, I would, you know, recognizing my own sinful nature, I would say not just that there's a risk that it becomes ritualistic and, and just kind of, again, going through the motions. I'd probably have to confess that very often it does. Um, you know, again, to my... To my shame, how many times do I lead worship because, well, it's it's what I was called to do. It's my job. And, you know, do I in – my, in my fallen nature, in, in our fallen nature, a lot of times, again, it doesn't have that, that ideal that we want it to. But, but again, then, then the question becomes is – public worship then going to be about about my feelings or my you know my my subjective feelings or is it going to be the the objective truth of God's word mm-hmm. yeah i i agree with you the way you resolve that because a good and sound liturgy reliably preaches the gospel over against my own personal enthusiasm on that morning um it does have something for the man I always talk about <clears throat> in one of my classes, the man who looks fine, but he's, he looks fine, but he's barely holding it together. That the liturgy has something for him too, that he'll, he'll never walk out of there in a liturgical service and, and done well, where he didn't get the thing he needed. Um, God's serving him, as we've talked about. So, Yeah, I have to, ah, this... I have to confess the same thing. Sometimes the the repetitive nature like having been in this type of service since before i can remember sometimes it it gets very easy for the mind to wander to slip into just saying the words and not thinking about that but and what i've been trying to do is to as we talked about at the beginning like what problem in that regard isn't solved by turning your attention again towards the cross and recognizing what all of this is about and then everything the picture changes at that point. And so mm-hmm. um, keeping that framing helps keep it on the rails, I suppose. Um, yeah. And that, that maybe is a, a more like a personal problem that is my own sin to grapple with. And then there's the the other side of that, which is, okay, now I'm talking about constructing the actual liturgy and, and here's something, there's, there's something for everyone here. And being able to make thoughtful decisions about how, how that, liturgy is done and done well. 
And maybe, again, it, it kind of comes then back to that first principle of the idea of word-saturated worship. Um, okay, when we're going to make decisions, those decisions ultimately should be geared towards we want to keep Christ and his cross at the center of worship in all the decisions we make. I mean, it doesn't matter what style music we're talking about. We want Christ at the center of it. That feels like a nice last word just for this episode. I am feeling kind of full. I'm ready for some dessert, but I think we've put a lot out there and this has been fun. Well, we covered, um, I think, am, I, am I cutting anybody off or do you have anybody else have a different last word? For, I think for now. we covered, I think, did we, did we get to all of those? We, we kind of took them in reverse order, in, I think, but all in of my mind, we did said in the beginning. I think we kind of touched base on all of them. So in my mind, we did, but I mean, there's always more to say, mm-hmm. but yeah. Um, who's up for dessert? Jacob, you want to kick us off? I want to hear how this. I want to hear how dessert works oh. first, kind of. <laughs> As I said in my email, don't overthink it. Uh, I'll go. I will go first. Um, Jacob, are you a PK too, or just John and me? I am not. My dad's a. Not, my dad's not, a pilot. Okay. Yeah. Oh God, oh, bless very him. Cool. Pilot. Yeah. Oh, what kind of plane? Tell that story quickly. Yeah. Pardon me. What kind of plane? What kind did of pilot? Fly? What was kind of plane? Yeah, commercial airline. Uh, he 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 for many years ran the flight school at South Dakota State University. Oh, very cool. Um, and now he actually works. Um, he's in simulators now. So he, they it's a flight training center that um, trains pilots, who, people who are already pilots for their next assignment, and so they come in and do classwork. <laughs> for a couple of weeks uh, and do lessons in the simulator and then go out and fly their planes. Mm, very, very neat. Cool. That's very neat. Planes have always been a fascination for me. We, we, I was born just miles away from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. And, and now being in Colorado yeah. Springs, there's three Air Force bases yeah. around me here. So there's always been, you know, looking up in the sky and just being fascinated. So... Yeah, I've I've always wanted Very to learn cool. to fly, and my dad offered to teach me, and I wish I would have taken him up on it, but now I just don't have time, and he's yeah. far away. And Carrie, my wife, says that I can learn to fly after the kids are grown up now, so mm. that if I widow her, at least the kids are <clears throat> off on their own yeah. by that point. <laughs> Very neat. Well, I'm, I'm glad I asked that question. So interesting. Um so my dessert is to think about being a pastor's kid, a PK, and having the Sunday lunch sort of post-mortem on my dad's sermon that day. <laughs> he had a great sense of humor. He never minded this. One time it was, he said in his sermon, it was a Pentecost Sunday, and he said in his sermon, I don't know about you, but I feel like I don't get up on Pentecost morning, wake up with a tinkle of joy. And we're like, Dad, really? Tinkle of joy. <laughs> so, oh, we just had fun with that. Maybe, maybe it's, it had to be there. But <laughs> one time, the, one time it was preaching on Jonah, and he says, in his sermon, he says, "You know, when Jonah swallowed that whale. No, no, I'm sorry. When the whale was swallowed by Jonah, he said no. <laughs> and at, at lunch, he, at lunch, he said, "Try what I may, 
I could not get that big fish out of John's mouth. So, <laughs> that was that was the post post mortem that day. <laughs> the sermon post mortem. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I have a. I mean, great moments in preaching from my, my dad. dad has yeah. a, did a similar thing. I remember with us. You know, we'd be eating lunch after after church on Sunday, and it's kind of quiet at the table. And then, so what was the sermon about? <laughs> and then kind of <laughs> take it from there. Mm, that's a classic. Um, so I, that's mine, short and sweet. John? I think, uh, man, I'm saying this at risk of having already made this a dessert from before, but we mentioned Bach earlier. And uh, I found out recently in the last month or so that um, I am in a lineage of people taught keyboard instruments by Bach himself. So Ooh. I don't know. I know my mother was taught by someone who was taught by someone who was taught by Bach. Or I can't. There's maybe a few more steps in between. But was it was it Bruce Bruce Backer? It might have been. See, because well, Bruce Backer is yeah. the connection for most people around here because he it, studied with so, Heinrich Fleischer. I see. Then studied with I think uh, Volcha, um, and then that can be traced back to Bach. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it was it was it was either him or my great grandpa was um, Zahn. He was the MLC choir. Oh yeah choir guy back in the day so yeah that's my my one my one little you know that and 99 cents will get me a cup of coffee at mcdonald's so <laughs> I, I had my mom very impressive my mom i had my mom teach me a, a lesson of organ <laughs> once i found that out at one point and and yeah now now there we are i just love the baroque style of um music especially it'd be like before or after a service as you're coming in or leaving like that, that style of, of organ just really speaks to me. <laughs> it resonates mm. with me a lot A fugue. Give me a good fugue, a good, uh, yeah, a good corral. Very nice. You know that I almost said this before with our main, main course that the organ just so simulates the human voice potentially. And, one writer says, and I stole the line, it put, gives me a place to put my voice. Mm-hmm. And I find myself, I, I love other instruments too, but I can really sing. I can really belt it out. It, it lets me put my voice there in a way that I don't hear it too much myself. So back to the question of are we enhancing participation is kind of only the only argument I would really make for the organ. But again, that's picking at the scraps on, the, on my plate <laughs> from, the, from earlier. Yeah, I love and the. <laughs> That that's one of the it's things quite, I try not to take for granted is just the the organ in MLC's chapel. You know, it was built right before I got there, and to to have that virtually every day that I was there is you know one of the better memories. I think I try not to take mm, it for granted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's quite a pedigree, John. Yeah. Uh, did did it take? You took one organ one, lesson. One organ lesson said? from my mom, and now I'm part of it. So I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe there are more that's strict requirements to be official. I don't know. I don't know if that's a. It's not going to be on a Wikipedia page, but. <laughs> oh, that's great, Jacob. You got so dessert? well. I mean, maybe I'll just pick up on the organ thing because, um, so we we I think I think everybody in the music division got this unsolicited email from from an organ builder, kind of in the area, and you know they're struggling with having 
employees there, you know, the labor shortage right now. So basically they were, they were looking for any students who wanted to learn how to be an organ builder and to come and be an apprentice at their shop and then maybe, you know, develop into a, develop into a, uh, an organ builder. And when I, when I got that email, I, I just thought to myself, if I could, if I could, if I was like 20 years old and could just push the pause button on my life and had no responsibilities for like 10 years, I think that would be a fascinating thing to do uh, because there's so much involved with, with pipe organ building. Um, you know, there's woodworking and acoustics and metalwork and electronics and um, you know, I think it's true that it was the most complicated machine that humans had ever built before the industrial revolution. And so, so yeah, over this, over this long extended Christmas break, I, I thought for a, a few moments about what would it be like just to, like I say, take 10 years of a pause and, and go learn something. So this was... This was a recent email. Yeah, I'm in between just, jobs. I'm yeah. looking for work, so maybe, yeah, it, maybe we, I'll, maybe it's time for me to push pause for ten years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We just we just got it a couple weeks ago. Um, Very neat. I'm sure even what was that even word? tuning an organ is probably a commitment mm. of many years just to be proficient. Mm. What was that word you used, Jacob? Complicated. Is that the word? Uh, just that it's the most complicated. Oh, complicated. Okay. Okay. Yeah, complicated. Okay. I thought I was learning a new word. My only experience was, I think I was in high school and I got involved with moving an organ. And I think it was one of several ranks and just seeing the whole thing laid out and which is what that involved to put this thing back together properly. So, yeah, that's very, very cool. Yeah. So that was a perfect dessert, Jacob. Okay, really okay. Yeah, you're very good at this. A cherry Jacob, on top have you, and everything. <laughs> have you podcasted much, Jacob? Because you seem like an old pro. Uh, no, no, I've I've never done this. It was fun, though. Oh, yeah. Very it was cool. very fun. You're yeah, a natural. It's great, have, huh. as, great having you on. I'm not on. sure I we, know what that is. I'm not, I don't consider yeah. myself a professional at this either. But Well, no, I, I yeah, really appreciate it. Right I, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for, thanks for asking. Yeah, thanks for having me. We covered more territory, John, than I thought we would. So we'll have to kind of step back and yeah, and rethink what this series could be and how much longer to go. Yeah, but, uh, there. Yeah. yeah, I would say there is more to say. You know, as far as you know, the big thing to me nowadays is this: the whole horizontal aspect of of worship. And maybe it kind of became a hobby horse for me. But you know, with this COVID thing, this idea that oh, I mm. can just worship from my computer screen. To me, it just completely misses the horizontal aspect that you go to worship not just for yourself, even even if you wouldn't get anything right. out of worship, which is impossible. But if, if you didn't need worship at all, it would still be good for you to be there for the other people there. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a whole episode in that? I and mean, we don't always have to go this long. This has been one of our longer ones, I think. Yeah, we're an hour 30, so we're... We're right on. Oh, we're, we're, okay. we're okay. <laughs> in the ballpark. <laughs> I remember what was the what was the meme at the time? It was where two or three are gathered, but no more than six or something <laughs> like that for for this. I remember. I mean, at that time, all of the my work shifted too, and part of what I ended up doing for a lot of churches was 
helping them actually facilitate an online service so that they could actually still conduct worship with everyone at the same time. Um, but now that these restrictions aren't in place anymore and the risk of disease and infection is not nearly as good, there's a good argument for, you know, being in person is a really, it's a blessing for in more ways than you might think right at the beginning. So yeah, maybe there is a whole episode there. Hmm. Could be. Could be. We'll f- maybe we maybe we'd start it. We'll start it. We'll find out, and if it takes twenty minutes and we've exhausted all we have to say, then we have a backup or play it or something. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. All right. Well, Very cool. that just about <clears throat> wraps it up. We have a long tradition of awkwardly ending the podcast, uh, just out of the blue. So if you have an awkward ending prepared, now is the time. Yeah, I don't. I don't really. I don't either. Okay. Didn't get it to it on the checklist. Okay. Well, that does it for <laughs> us here. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll see you next time. We got there. We got it. We got it. Okay. Uh, this has been where two or three. Cue the music.